welcome to sin talk the sin talkers around the table today discuss the formation of nations we'll think about nations and how they come to be to live and sometimes die are nations born how are nations different from tribes and kingdoms where do national anthems come from how central is ethnicity to the dynamics of formation which countries make patriotic films where is the nation in african cinema why do nations need centers such as capitals or presidents how and when does state formation or nation building fail is there such a thing as patriotic art cinema is the idea of nations a universal one would nations exist in the distant future or what might they evolve into we are pleased and privileged to have three sin talkers with us here today professor john clamel he is a social anthropologist and has spent most of his scholarly and teaching life in asia He is currently at OP Jindal Global University at Sonipat. M.K. Raghavendra he is a film scholar. He analyzes cinema as a political discourse. He lives in Bangalore. And Professor Lakshmi Subramanian. She is a historian by training and is interested particularly in social, cultural and economic history of modern India. She is currently at Bitspilani, Goa. So Lakshmi why don't we set the ball rolling with you um you're the most natural person to go to uh, I think the, the uh what is a nation um how does it come to be um how various are the ways um how natural is it um now surely these questions don't have a tic tac toe three bullet answer um but to the extent that you can schematize it um what what would be your take on this Okay, uh, let me venture to answer some of these questions uh, and I'll take the vantage point of history, which is the discipline I'm most familiar with. So in a sense, a lot of what I say will be empirically grounded with some kind of conceptual framework. I think I uh, tend to endorse the idea that nation as we know it today is essentially a modern political formation. It's a modern entity. um uh, i do not believe that these are primeval or there is some kind of soul that existed before the formation of the modern nation as we understand it largely in the european context and i think it's to do with the way in which larger groups in a population on shared notions of territoriality religion language faith practices uh begin to identify themselves in an abstract way as the nation so in a sense i prefer to anchor the formation of the nation taking cue from the european case study uh into the 17th 18th century england is normally seen as the kind of first nation and i see it as some kind of mobilized communities in the abstract so 
I would definitely see it as a modern political formation. Um, I also do believe that it comes alongside the rise of enlightened modernity. So very much to do with uh, developments in the 18th century when you have a perception of a shared community, of an extended community. You might not know everybody, but the intersection of print, of new formations of the market, the emergence of a new bourgeois class. And so then there's you... something about information, there's something informational about it. Well, I think it's to do with a sense of extending your linkages beyond conventional groupings of kin, caste, ethnicity. I think there is it's a, a process moment, of abstraction. It's a process of abstraction. It's a process of abstraction that rides piggyback on certain economic and social transformation. Hmm. So I do believe that you reach a point at which it is beneficial, it helps certain powers that be to identify as a nation. So I do think that it's an abstraction, but grounded in concrete processes of economic and social transformation. And you mentioned a while ago that in a way, England can be thought of as the first nation. Now, how how cogent uh, was that process itself? Uh, and, 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 and were there other nations popping up almost simultaneously or it's the colonies it touched and so on and so on? So were the colonizers the First Nations? That's an extremely interesting question. Let me try and answer it in two ways. I think in England itself, there is this kind of self-representation about the English being able to mobilize a certain Englishness to fight off the Norse invasion. So it's obviously a sense of England being able to summon certain kinds of, I wouldn't call it myths, but certain kind of memorial practices to feel as a nation. I could say that for the Scots as well. Uh, so I could say that for many other entities. But I think there is something distinct that's happening by the 16th, 17th and 18th century where England, I think, does acquire precedence in referring to itself as the nation. The French would be before, a close before, second before, 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 say, the 18th century in France. For me, which is really a turning point in the articulation of a nation on civic terms. Right. The fact that people come together and want to stay together on shared practices and are prepared to defend those virtues and then think in terms of borders. So I think there are different kinds of nations that come into being. And I think England offers a very interesting first case. And and for example, when when there were the Norse invasions, um, the Nordics were not a nation themselves. Huh? It it was just like the barbarians turning up or whatever. I mean, some, uh, you know what I mean? Because somehow yeah, some I, kind I, of a process leads to. I I get your drift, you know. But I think what I'm trying to do is lots of peoples can be called nations. If you think of the University of Paris in the Middle Ages. Many students who were not from Paris were called nations of foreigners right. who had their own conventions or their own laws, who ate in a particular manner, who had a long. But on the other hand, I do think when we look at nations in the way we understand it today. today. So there have been semantic shifts along I the way. I think there is yeah. therefore a very distinct semantic shift in the way in which nations were thought of, the ways in which nations thought of themselves, and the way in which nations were projected, which brings me to the 
other question that you asked, were the colonizers then really the First Nation? And there, I would have a slightly uh, more, um, shall we say, a slightly more nuanced response to that. I think by the middle of 18th and definitely by the 19th century, the idea of the nation is also um, projected as the pinnacle of modernity mm. and given to colonies. Mm. And then the colonies can respond. They may not necessarily respond to it in the manner which is best suited for them. That's something which we have to think about when we discuss the future of the nation mm. or indeed the present predicaments of the nation. Mm. So I think I, I would still very much say that it is an 18th century, 19th century formation and it has very distinct lineages depending on the case study that we study. I mean, France would be different from England. Interesting. What resonates with you in this, uh, MK? This thing of uh, two things, national language and religion. Right. Yeah, this, these are the two things which sort of interest me. This thing of religion, you find that most countries, most countries have some majority religion. It's not that they're evenly distributed. Okay, mm -hmm. evenly distributed. For you example, mean, you mean you mean when you look at it today, or you look at it today, you're a historical to, today, which right. means there is some preponderance of a certain religious community, you know, forming, a, getting it together and forming. A, for example, Russian Orthodox. You go to Poland, you find Catholic. No, the hostility between Russia and Poland is largely because of this thing of Catholicism and uh, and Orthodox, Russian Orthodox. Okay? Sure, sure. So this this thing of religion should be very important. And I think there's a certain mythologizing of the religious moment, the first time the religion came there in the history of the, you know. But the, does it lead to, uh, because, you know, it could lead to communities, but uh, a nation is a specific kind of grouping. It's, it's isn't agreed, it? but it seems to grow out of this. It's, so you could call it the pre, like, like pre-modern or pre-colonial or whatever. It's, it seems to sort of, uh, the nation seems to depend a lot on this uh, thing of the religious uh, community. It, uh, yeah. John, would you think of it uh, on some kind of an evolutionary line? Do things go from being whatever, either a religious or ethnic community to, there's no from to, because the the priors coexist. The, you, yes, you, I mean, as Lakshmi says, I mean, there, there, historically there isn't a fixed form because you've got so many varieties. And I think, that's one thing that problematizes the idea to some extent. The other thing that problematizes it, I think, is the fact that, of course, most nations are, in fact, multi-religious, multi-ethnic. And when you look at the nation in an abstract sense, of course, you, you do have that sense of trying to create a, a common community, right? As we, we see all the time. Yeah? So what does a nation? Well, I, I basically follow Lakshmi's uh, argument that it is an abstract idea, of course, because most of us have to be told that we are members of a nation. You know, as the famous Benedict Anderson pointed out, it is in that sense an imagined community. And it's a complex imagined community precisely because of not only factors like globalization, which are causing, you know, the ideas of older ideas of a unity very, very much into question. And the fact that most nations actually have to struggle with the fact that they have diverse communities within them. And the interesting dynamic there seems to me to be exactly how they attempt to manage that diversity, whether you have a country like, say, Singapore or Switzerland, which so is it, is it, accepts. Is it, is it that effort or that process of managing diversity that leads to some kind of a notion, the abstract notion of nation coming to be, or you're trying to link not, to Not necessarily, I think. Things. I mean, I, I, I read it slightly differently in the sense that some, some nations have been able to manage this successfully by admitting from the beginning that they contain multiple communities. Right. But somehow there's some overarching 
thing. So that, that is an originary us... moment. Exactly. Switzerland, Singapore, for example, mm. the public policy circulates to this day to a great extent around handling the multi-ethnic quality of, of the society. So it's not that it's unproblematic there, but it's accepted as part of the basis of the nation. I think the problem is for nations which see themselves as unitary, but in fact contain substantial minorities and have to somehow negotiate that relationship between the abstract idea and the kind of empirical reality on the ground where it can become messy, of course. You see separatist movements, the Basques wanting to leave Spain, you know, the Quebecois wanting to leave Canada and so on, on the basis of a mixture often of, of language and religion mm. uh, being the base on which people have tried to define identity over against the the nation of which they historically have actually been part of. So when do nations fail to come to be? Is there a way of thinking about that? Well, now, obviously there have been separations <laughs> and separatist movements. Um, they, they tend to fail along two lines. I mean, one I wouldn't necessarily call a failure. I mean, I remember being around when Czechoslovakia split into two. I lived in Japan at the time, and it was wonderful. The old embassy was still there, and it had two front doors and two flagpoles. One said, the Czech is on the left, you know, Slovakia is on the right. I mean, it was an amicable splitting along what were perceived as artificial lines of being put together. You know, it was part of the old Austro-Hungarian Empire, which stuck together all sorts of nationalities in a you know, huge, unwieldy collective, which people didn't really feel so they belonged to. So then there was something to. arbitrary about Czechoslovakia. There was something arbitrary about that. I mean, I think the other model is when, when people talk about the failed state in the mm. sense of perhaps countries like the Congo, right. where, you know, government is simply unable to protect its own citizens against deprivation, against the, the you know, inroads of warlords and so on, of violence, of, of external exploitation, and can no longer really govern the territory which they theoretically purport to govern. That, that's a different kind of failed state, I think. That, that's a very different dynamic. And because of the way in which these things started, Lakshmi, uh, have there been somewhat arbitrary, somewhat artificial groupings put together being called nations? And then it is some of these separations like Czech Republic and whatever is just uh, some kind of a writing of uh, what, what may have been done arbitrarily in the past. Yeah, let me sort of take that question and, in fact, um, respond to what John said, which I think um, sort of really nails it. I mean, can we then think of um, phases in the articulation of the nation? Mm -hmm. So you could have an early phase when you have this abstract political concept, which certainly resonates with the aspirations of a large segment of the population. And you have a mature phase when it all seems to go hunky-dory. And when you have excessive pressures from democratization itself, then the imperative to homogenize and standardize the nation becomes even stronger, and then you might have some fault lines. So I'm just thinking whether when we look at the idea of the abstract negotiating with the ground reality, maybe we need to also start thinking about phases in the very formation of the nation. So that's a very quick sort of uh, thought that came but is to it, my is mind. It, is it uh, 
to put it differently, is it possible to be untouched by colonialism to and, and, and still somehow have this thing called nation? I mean, you were either a colonizer or you were a colony. Yeah, and yeah, therefore, uh, whether you were yeah, a yeah. Dutch or a French or Belgian or whatever well, colony, you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean all, how, but, how natural is it? I, yeah, I will get, to, yes. yeah, yeah, we'll get to John on this, I but think what are you on yeah, this? Yeah, but that's a very, very interesting observation. But on that, I do have, a, I do have something to say. I think when we look at failed states. I think A, the pairing the nation and the state will also have to be done a little carefully. They're not the same They're thing. not the same. So what are they? But, uh, but I, I am trying to say that sometimes when we look at failed states, we might be looking at the problem may be the legacy of inheritance rather than the legacy of competence. So something could have failed because the idea of the nation as a exogenous sort of European import mm. just was not right yeah. for that particular society. Yeah. And therefore, on the other hand, it did not mean that that idea did not resonate with the aspirations of a substantial segment of the population that for convenience we call the liberal elite, yeah. which takes you on with the nation as the objective of anti-colonial uprisings. But then when that is done, the nation seems to flounder. <laughs> and cannot seem to deal with problems of separatism, fissures, etc. So I think, you know, it, one will have to be careful in seeing uh, even the idea of the failed state, uh, particularly African states. I think... How how natural is this uh, notion of nation? Well, I think I think one of the key points that Lashmi's just raised is the question of colonialism. You know, it, bizarre as it seems today, I mean, less than a century ago, m most of the world was under some kind of colonial domination by, by usually a but minority. But the past that not, did they end up becoming nations? Well, th this is the interesting point. I mean, if, if you have imposed on you boundaries which don't meet a natural geographical or ethnic religious divide, you know, if you have someone dividing up your territory uh, according to their principles of how that how that space should be you know reorganized it's not surprising you're going to have people find it's very uncomfortable to be fitted into something a political right. entity which has no resonance with their with their with their lives with the rest of the, with the rest of their lives that that inevitably they're bound to be severe tensions you're going to develop along those kind of fault lines do you do you see imprints of this in um, cinema mk do you do you see um do you see different kinds of uh, national cinema, let's call it, having different kinds of resonances. Some places it's more developed and some places, I mean, developed makes it sound like, you know, the, the ones that are not doing it are somehow behind yeah, in some there shape. Are, but there are, you see, the, there are national cinemas. There is every single cinema from every single country has a certain, certain aspect. That's for Oscar submissions, but uh, uh, you know what I mean? I mean, for example, Africa, does it have... African, there is no, I mean, there is such a thing called African cinema, but Africa is a continent. Of course, of Very course, interesting that. different that, countries. That you different. don't have, you've got, see, number of countries make uh, African cinema, which is one is, I think, Burkina Faso makes it, Mali makes some movies, Senegal became quite, but you know, you look at these movies from uh, from these countries, you don't find that sense of nationhood inscribed in those films, mm -hmm. right? There's no community, Okay, You're, like for example, you, there is this, uh, there's this uh, from Senegal, I think, um, um, a very famous Senegalese director, he was the sort of, I've forgotten his name right now. Sure. He made this movie called Mandabi, he made this movie called um, 
the man data that is the money order he made this movie called i think on uh, the rickshaw whatever but the thing is about this you you look at his movies you see you don't have a sense of the african community right mm-hmm. so what what you see are groups of people individual lives individual trajectories but you don't have a sense of uh, a national community you look at any other advanced more advanced country russian cinema chinese cinema they all have this sense of the national community right Japanese cinema would have this national community. Indian cinema certainly. I mean, they would allegorize Indian cinema, would allegorize it in some way. U.S., for instance, American cinema. The notion of the individual, the individual, the notion of the nuclear family is very important in American cinema. These are very specific. The sanctity in marriage in American cinema is only in American cinema. In France, it wouldn't have any value. In France, you don't have the individual; you have the citizen. The relationship is very different. Okay, What is it's a civic nation. Is... It's very different. Yeah. Hmm. You're saying they're citizens in French cinema, not necessarily individuals. Not necessarily. No, they're citizens. Like you don't like, for example, the kind of acting you have in American cinema. You know De Niro, you know Al Pacino, you know a certain kind of acting they do. They portray these individuals who stand above everybody else, into whom uh, the public can project. Right? They have the uh, the French actor. You don't have that kind of differentiation in in in. in French actor is more like an American supporting actor. He's more like an American supporting actor. Would you would you link that to uh, some kind of a notion of national identity, or it's uh, it is uh, the sense of citizen, which came out of the French Revolution, out of Rousseau, which is different from the individual, which came out of the American system. It came out of that, right? The two different systems. So you don't have the kind of uh, the characters that you have in American cinema. You have, you know, American cinema. You have characters, character actors, and you have stars, right? The character. If you take Spider Man, if you take Spider Man, <laughs> Peter Parker is individual. His uncle and aunt are supporting a character actors. So the character actor, you don't see the world through the character actor. You don't see the world through the character actor. You see the world through the star. So that there's a clear demarcation between the kind of actors that uh, Dustin Hoffman, uh, Robert De Niro, Al Pacino are, what kind of roles they play, and the kind of roles that um, Edward Norton. Okay, Brad Pitt, more more Edward Norton, or somebody like Christopher Walken would play. They play different roles. They are basically meant as supporting actors. Jack Nicholson is a different kind of actor. He's not a supporting actor, but he's not a. He doesn't identify with the character. He doesn't try to bring his himself to the character. He demonstrates in some way. So there are. This is only from the point of view of characters, but all these national cinemas have different characteristics which are identifiable. Indian And cinema is a different set you, of characteristics. If you had to say what. Kinds of countries or nations make patriotic films. Is there a way of, is there a way of drawing a causal link to say that these kinds of countries make patriotic films and don't? Now there might be one option in there, but I'm, I'm, I'm trying to generalize it a little bit. Actually, it's not a country which makes patriotic films. It's the historical moment which endangers engenders patriotic films. Such as what, like war? World War Two. Mm-hmm. World War One did not engender patriotic films. World War One, so? yes. World that? War One is seen as uh, as an instance of the senselessness of war. World War Two is seen as a good war. Okay, they are completely different. You take Spielberg's movies. You take something like The War Horse. World War One. It's all about the senselessness of war. You take Saving Private Ryan. It's jingoistic. It's about patriotism, right? So they are two different wars. They get different responses. Russia so are or all all warring countries would have patriotic films 
I'm pretty sure you haven't done a listing and no, I'm yeah. But. If you take World War Two, which seems to have involved a large number of countries, America, Russian films have one sort of patriotic films. Their patriotic films are more about the experience of war. Okay, they are not really jingoistic in that sense. There's too much of suffering in Russian war movies. <laughs> okay, there's too much of suffering in those movies. American war movies are jingoistic. Not something like, of course, you've got something like in Thin Red Line, which always, is not. Huh? Yeah, in the sense that they always have an enemy. They have an enemy, and the enemy is demonized in hmm. American war movies. Not, not uh, something like Thin Red Line, but certainly something like uh, Saving Private Ryan hmm. would be a demonization of the enemy. You don't usually have that in Russian war films. Is uh, there is there this friend for dynamic? Does one need uh, an aggressor? Does one need an enemy? Pick pick your word for Nations? for for that process of 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 this agglomeration to come to be for it because it's a kind of identity and then you need to uh, foster it in some way. What do you, what do you think, John? Well, I know people have argued that in relation to the U.S. You know, with the end of the Cold War, suddenly there wasn't an enemy, uh-huh. right? And a lot of the confusion in U.S. foreign policy over the last twenty, thirty years has been not not the attempt to generate an enemy in quite literal sense, but to somehow find that contrast with which. You know, America can be can be compared in in positive ways, and I don't think they've been very successful in achieving that goal. If if it's I don't know if it's a defined goal, but you certainly see this, I think, in the way in which their policy has flip flopped over the last two or three presidents. But it is possible to become a nation without having an antagonist nation opposite you. See. That's a little, you know, I think... I know, this is oversimplification. This is, well, I think it's like this. I think there is the notion of territoriality. Let's face it, and I don't think it it waited very much for that territory to develop. I mean, you have territories that develop and they have a certain coherence and cogency and then you have all these identities that get melded And then you have perhaps the idea of a nation that emerges. And as I said, I think it's very important for us to track the formation of the nation. So do nations emerge? Um, I think they emerge, I think, in some cases, and then they are put together in some cases. I mean, if you think of defending territory, insisting on taxes being paid within those boundaries, and also ensuring that the state within that nation is able to distribute certain revenues to larger sections of the people will provide a rationale for something to emerge. Right. So it doesn't have to be just defense, aggression, opposition. It can be something more organic, something more rational. It can be that process of self-organization that leads to it. Also. Yeah. And I think that that we, we have to uh, give some credibility to the rationale of the project. It's a project, and yeah. it's a project that takes place over time and in different ways, and everything contributes to it. I mean, the making of cinema is one. Pedagogy is another. I mean, I'm, I was just thinking the other day when I was uh, doing a lecture on Napoleon, I was stunned to read this comment from him which says that uh, if you really want a political state and a nation to be efficient, you need a teaching body. 
And if you have to tell your child from infancy whether he should be a good Republican or a good Catholic or a good monarchist, if you don't have that kind of serious pedagogy, you're not going to be able to build a nation. So, so it, it, there it, is a sense of... It's thought, it's cultural. It's, there's a building block. Yeah. So there is something you aspire to. So there is psychology, but there is pedagogy. And I think uh, we, we need to therefore... I, I, I would be uncomfortable with uh, simply looking at nations as emerging on the cusp of war. On the other hand, I can't deny it. If you think about the ways in which the Spanish Armada is fought by Elizabethan England and the flag of the nation is taken right to the ocean, right. which technically... Oceans really don't have nations. I mean, the ocean is unbounded. It, it is uh, there, mare librem for the most part until it becomes mare closum. But the point is, I think, uh, that there is a way in which you organize rationally. And I think but, we but, need to but, give that some credibility. But what happens to the prior forms? Before what what happened? So you know, you, it it could have been a tribe or a I mean, kingdom. Before the rational process starts, yeah, really. yeah before the rational well, process starts. <laughs> that's it. Well, I mean, a number of things. I mean, I think to some extent, nations are in a way thrown together. You know, certain elements of identity begin to coalesce around certain kind of things. You know, you mentioned Elizabeth in England. I I often think of that the way Elizabeth the first used to process around the country, which had two functions. One was to show herself to people who. Heard that there was some such person in somewhere called London, but you know the average peasant who travelled twenty miles from his village in the whole of his life would never have seen this. I think the other idea was to impoverish the aristocracy, of course, by having to put her up. The, <laughs> ma- the, the, the Meiji Emperor, but Japan, you, 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 did the is, same thing. So that's the process of embodiment. Yeah, you're embo- you are in that case perhaps literally embodying the nation. But that seems to be a very different model from from nations which are, in a sense, created. And again, I, I think automatically of colonialism in this respect. If you took a nation like, say, where should we take Kenya? Where did it come from? I mean, it wasn't there as a historical entity in the sense of, say, Ethiopia had been over a long historical period. You know, it was formed and straight line boundaries were more or less drawn around its edges. And there you had a new nation. Some, some sociologists political sociology in particular, like to talk about a theory called institutional convergence. What does that mean? It means this idea of modernity that Lakshmi was mentioning, that if you if you want to be modern, you more or less have to have the same things. You have to have courts, you have to have universities, you have to have a flag, you have to have a national anthem, you have to be like the others. So there's a template to be formed. There is, there is a template. And it's interesting, when you come across these characters who try to create a new nation, you know, every now and again you come across these eccentrics who found a little piece of land somewhere, decide to print their own passports, you know, invent a flag and so on. What they do is they actually use the same template. Although they're breaking away, in a sense, from the majority nations, what they do is reproduce them in microcosm, in the little space they've defined as their new territory. But not all of them succeed, obviously. This is true, of course. Yeah. And uh, what about what about regionalism, MK? Because that's the I mean, especially with large countries like India and you know some other Russia, yeah, for Russia example, and or India, China, the, Russia and India are the examples. Indian cinema very interesting. Regional cinema, there's a certain resistance of regional cinema to the nation. Mm-hmm. Indian regional cinema, for example, I've written a book on on Canada cinema. It's an interesting thing. There's a well-known movie, just one example, called Nagarahau. It's a, it's a blockbuster. Nagarahau. Nagarahau, which means cobra. 
There's the protagonist is a wayward youth who has two one preceptor, a guru he admires and loves uh, enormously. The other is the principal he hates, college principal he hates, <laughs> and the guy, the 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 guru he admires and adores. When you go to his uh, house, you find pictures of Kannada literary Kannada literary figures on the. My solitary figures, writers, and that sort of thing. You go to the principal's house, you find national leaders there. Right. <laughs> okay. So that's the symbolism. So the question is, yeah. why this association? This association of the nation with something lesser, the the, the regions. So obviously, there are two different objects of loyalty here. One is the nation. One is the region. Right. And again, is the relationship antagonistic, or is just one of inconvenience? Uh, it's it's not antagonistic, but they seem to be. Uh, striving for, uh, I mean, for popularity with the the the, the immediate object of loyalty is the region. That to Mysore, it's not it's not Karnataka. Right. It's Mysore. Kannada cinema is basically a Mysorean cinema, right? Right. The princely Mysore is an object of loyalty. The other thing is somewhat above, a distant. It's like this. It's uh, I don't know. It's it's not that uh, it's not that the region and the nation are antagonistic to each other. But they are rival objects of loyalty, and mm. the region is the one which has more loyalty. This is less loyalty. Sometimes, um, I mean, the region is also answerable to the nation in some sense. So it's a somewhat triangular thing. But there is some resistance. Do you find it odd that a lot of this ends up becoming about physical boundaries? Because obviously we live, and there are people, and you know there are different ways in which communities come to be. But somehow nations are. These nice enclosed uh, shapes on 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 on, on uh, you know what I mean because there are different ways in which uh, communities could have been dimensioned, uh, but somehow I, I know you mentioned that things get subsumed within a nation, which is to say that it's some kind of a super envelope into which a lot of yeah. other things. Yeah, I I I'd like is to that, sort of is that odd? Um, well, I'd like to think of the dynamic between the region and the nation. Uh, you know, through I'd like to think this through a little bit more. Um, I think, of course, there would be a certain degree of tension between the regional imagination and something that is superimposed from above as being imperative to learn to be a good national subject. And I'm thinking of really in the Indian context, the imposition of Hindi hmm. as the national language and the kind of resistance you had. To this particular imposition from the southern states, yeah. uh, primarily Tamil Nadu, which really felt that this whole idea of language hegemony was taking away what they considered the most vital component of their regional identity. Yeah. But having said that, I also do believe. But does regional identity precede the national one? Well, I think it is coeval. That's the point. I think when we look at even regional language movements in Tamil Nadu, a region that I know a little bit, mm -hmm. I do believe that Tamil also is writing to multiple constituencies. It's not writing only to Tamil regionalists who want a separate regional state. It also writes for those speakers, those lovers of the language who visualize the nation. Right. So I think so the regional politic. and the national, this dynamic, I think, has to be sort of thought through a little carefully. And I think also, and I come back to the rationale of the nation, and particularly for the post-colonial nation like us or parts of Africa, you know, migrations, mobility, the kind of massive population transfers that have taken place would make it very difficult for 
one to say that this nation has failed. The idea of the nation has failed. So I think bureaucracy, the civil service, the ability to move across labor markets, all this produces a certain rationale for the nation to continue with all its problems on the ground. And I think this is one of the reasons why the nation is also important in the context of Europe. I mean, it also grows at the intersection of free markets, the bourgeoisie, bureaucracy, etc., etc. Although the modes of nationhood might differ, and as you know, Raghavendra made that very important point about French cinema being so much more citizen conscious, I think civic nationalism was one model. That was not the only model, but it was one model. And it's also had its issues. It's not as though uh, France takes pride in its Frenchness, which is a particular mode of citizenship, real secularization, etc., etc. But it doesn't mean it hasn't run into problems, either in France or in its colonies. But I do think we need to remember this uh, the rationality behind the project. I think that's really what I'd like to sort of keep at, keep at the foreground. So what happens to cinema when countries split? It's difficult to say, you know. There was Yugoslavia, see, for example, look at I mean, Yugoslavia. There's India-Pakistan in a way. Pakistan? Um, in, there's India-Pakistan in a way. Um, there is... Actually, yeah, yeah this, Pakistan is an interesting thing. I think the sense of nationalism in Pakistan is less than that in India, you know. Mm-hmm. I get that sense, you know. I wanted to make this point earlier. You know, Islam is a community which is pan. It's not national, okay? It's pan. I mean, it's pan across Asia, nations, yeah. right? It's Ummah, whatever. It's across nations, right? I read something by some British Pakistani called Kaleem Siddiqui, somebody, who said that nations are actually, a, uh, shall we say, an obstacle in the path of uh, the Islamic community. So when they had this Islamic nationalism in Pakistan, there was probably a mistake there, you know in having Islamic nationalism because Islam is goes across the thing concept of nations, which... Is it a different, at least in the cinema of that region? Is it's it difficult a different to say, but kind I don't, yeah. or it's just difference of degree, difference of kind? I'll tell you, I just saw a Pakistani horror movie in which, a horror <laughs> movie, uh, in which the horrific object who goes around with the chainsaw with an axe killing people wears a burqa. Oh. Okay, now burqa is religious attire. Right. To use burqa as an object of horror, you tell me. Maybe they didn't give it as much thought as you're doing. No. <laughs> I think they have. In fact, he said it in an interview. He said it in an interview that the burqa is an awful, you know. So it's, you know, it's there, there are, there are, I think that there are sense of, you know, nationalistic thing that Pakistan there, doesn't have that. I'd like to come in on, uh, because you said what happens to cinema. Now, I don't have a ready answer. But you can do that for music. Yeah, I don't have a ready answer for cinema, but I certainly have an answer for music. And uh, I want to make this point, and I think it is an important, uh, it's an important reflection for us to consider. When uh, we had partition, and you had particularly Hindustani music, classical Hindustani North Indian music, which was known as, you know, Hindustani music, uh, faced a real conundrum. Because uh, most of the Muslim musicians opted to stay back in India. Few went to Pakistan, where music was in fact denounced by the state as un-Islamic. Yes. 
primarily. And there was a real concern among Pakistani musicians who kept trying to come to India with visa, they had huge problems with visa, could not get visas to come back, meet their friends, etc. But there was a real problem. What do you call this music? Can you call it Ilme Mausiki Hindustani? Or do you call it Ilme Mausiki Pakistani? Right. It, was a real, it was a real issue. And they did not know what to do. And what then happened is the state, the Pakistani state, heavily invested in the ghazal, hmm. which becomes the classic, iconic Pakistani cultural symbol. Yeah. Where music continues to remain with Hindustan, although we've had some fabulous, you know, exchanges of artists, I do think something happens with with nations being born in the way they did in 1947. I think some real casualties happened, and music was certainly one casualty, because we lost a lot of the older shared practice. On their part, it became much more reductive. Uh, there was a very good film, a documentary film made called Khayal Darpan by Yusuf Saeed, who actually tracked the afterlife of classical music in Pakistan. And to his, uh, you know, to, to his surprise, found a lot of interest, but also a lot of resistance. So there was a moment when, under Ayub Khan, they had to Islamize all the ragas which had Indian names. Right. So, you know, Shankara became something else. And, and conversely, we, we had our own, you know, we had our own moment of sanitization. What is your observation on this, John? Because this is interesting and, you know, in a way, sharing of similar or the same cultural mm. practice between what ends up being two nations. I mean, is, cin is, cinema, is, again, I, I can't, you know, really comment on any any detail. I'm of an expert here. But in the visual arts, I think, in painting particularly, this 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 principle seems to work in a slightly different way. I think between India and Pakistan, for example, there's still a lot of artistic exchange, but it's women who are doing this. Now, to what extent the whole nation idea is a sort of patriarchal project, right. I don't know. Because it seems to be Pakistani women painters who are actively attempting with difficulties because of the situation they face at home, apart from the question of visas and travel and so on, to actually transcend those national boundaries in, in some way, to keep alive those, those kind of links. You know, at one time, Lahore was one of the major art centers of the subcontinent, yeah. you know, one of the best art schools in India at that time. What is Japan like? Is Japan a different kind of nation? Because again, you know, there is there is this uh, there's this kingdom uh, that goes all the way. It's part parts of it are ceremonial. Um, now, obviously, Japan is a different kind of country than Kenya. I mean, you 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 took the name of Kenya a while ago. In what ways do you think they are? Uh, I mean, if you were if you were looking for a kind of pure, in inverted commas, obviously, example of the nation. Actually, Japan or possibly Korea, South Korea, might be good examples. Pure. In the sense that, in the sense that there's a very strong sense of identity that doesn't go as far as excluding minorities, but the minorities are definitely minorities. There's a very strong sense of history, which is ancient and which largely ancient. unbroken. It helps in Japan because it's an island, I think perhaps a bit like England, you can have a better sense of, of being cut off so from... Islands are better countries? Well, it, Islands it, develop sharper sense of identity. Well, yes, you know, continental countries have more porous boundaries. Right. You know, more gets in, more gets out than, than on the whole happens with, with, with island states. Um, so th I think there is that very strong sense of homogeneity. And if you, if you do have that, even though you have to now accept 
certain aspects of globalization. You have to accept the fact there are minorities living in the country. Uh, it can still give you a very strong sense that there really is a nation and it's visible and its symbols are not particularly, how shall I put it? In some countries, I mean, if you go to England, even the symbols of nationhood are subject to satire. The queen can be satirized. You know, all sorts of things can be satirized. I wouldn't recommend doing that in Japan. Uh, this is kind of a no-no. You know, there's a really very strong sense that this identity is not sacred exactly, but is taken very, very seriously. The emperor, for example, is you know, now a, a constitutional figure, but nevertheless revered as symbolically the center of this nation of great antiquity. And it's for this reason that, to some extent, Japanese resist a lot of immigration, in, you know, inward migration of people, and has a terribly bad reputation for accepting refugees. And if you ask people why, it always comes up to this question about oh, well, they won't, they won't be able to understand our culture. They won't but, integrate. But I think the question is the how nation. homogeneous is it? Are there are there sub identities? Are there sub ethnicities? Are there is there sub nationalism in some shape and form? Because uh, there, there are two versions. It, I mean, I think sounds... in, in fact, although although you know, there's there's a kind of common Japanese language. I mean, the the the, the BBC of Japan is called NHK, so right. you know, standard. That's the standard dialect. But there are many regional dialects, and of course, there are in fact quite substantial minorities in, in the northern island of Hokkaido. There's a large group called Ainu, who are really a Siberian people, but were in Hokkaido long before it was colonized by Japan. And in the southwest, there's the islands of Okinawa which have a culture very distinct from that of mainland Japan. And you have a large Korean minority who are there largely because of Japanese colonialism itself, brought as laborers of one kind or another in the war or after the war, but yet are still not quite recognized as being somehow part of the nation have a rather separate identity. In fact, quite a lot of the Korean so there's a population... Core, there's a core and there's periphery. Yeah, don't don't necessarily even have Japanese nationality, oddly enough. They may have lived there for generations, but are still kind of permanent residents rather than citizenship. This very important question of the citizenship as defining a certain kind of relationship to the, to the nation. But that's... Uh, what role does language play, MK? Language. Now, that's a slightly different question with a different resonance than just regional, right? It's, it's not regionalism, it's language. Now, there are obviously films, for example, in different kinds of languages. Um, is, is there an interplay with, with language? See, the Soviet Union, when the Soviet, you're talking about the Soviet Union and several languages. No, there were regions of the Georgian, Armenian, right? Ukrainian. So there are, are there Georgian languages. films? Are there Armenian yeah, films? Yeah, there are. There are. In fact, they're very different. Georgian films are very different from Russian films. And that uh, thing was kept apart during the Soviet period, right? Now they are completely different countries. But uh, And how do they register the uh, this notion of identity? They may not be referring to a They are actually allowed to be Georgian movies. They are allowed to be Georgian movies. They are not Soviet movies in that sense. Though they are, you know... So what happens is in these Georgian movies in the Soviet period, the movies are made in Georgian. There's one called Piro's Money about this local painter. There are other movies dealing with Georgian life. They generally try to avoid uh, any notion of the Soviet identity. They don't bring that very much into everything. They don't, they don't problematize it. They don't uh, provoke that thing. They don't, you know, they stay away from the subject. They make it still remain Georgian though it was in the Soviet period. But usually you find that, uh, I mean, this is a fairly uncommon thing, that this sense of uh, 
it's an uncommon thing for one country to have more than one language cinema it's not a very common thing right? only india and russia as far as i know do that and of course canada canada is another there again canada you've got the french uh, canadians and you've got the english canadians on one side the english would be canadians would be the cronenberg uh, atomigo and these would be i think uh, there are some others um, who made um, jesus of montreal and all that there's another set of uh, they're completely different you don't they don't you don't see them very being very much alike i think what strikes me as interesting in what you've said so far mk is that somehow it looks like certain kinds of films when they're not uh, and again it depends on the subject matter and so on they're somewhat more personal about uh, smaller local stories but aren't there other ways of being political without referring to i mean other kinds of collectivities other kinds of collective struggles and issues and questions uh they don't necessarily need to refer to the idea of a nation no you know what i mean yeah it's possible let's see for example you take art cinema you take if you take european art cinema if you take some something like robert bresson you take somebody like uh, ingmar bergman you take them you wouldn't find this inscription of the nation in robert bresson hmm. i don't know if you've seen uh, something like uh, Uh, amor this recent movie of michael haneke that that you know because it's, it's very private space right a lot of art cinema deals with private space large what you're talking when you're talking of uh, national cinemas by and large you exclude european art cinema right you would, you would exclude it you know national cinemas would largely be popular films popular cinema by and large okay so the the question of this very private cinema meant for small audiences does not address a large enough audience to be called national cinema right so that that thing you find but that is not true of third world asian cinemas and all these you know russian cinema would be national cinema french cinema outside these renoir would be national cinema but not bresson that kind of thing so this non national what is very very private cinema very personal cinema is outside the thing of national cinema i don't think you have anybody like that in india by yeah. and large yeah I think the thing that I want to push you on a little bit John is whether you and you're an anthropologist in many ways um do you think of nation as a natural naturalized kind of thing or what what is it what of course we know what it is but how I mean I think it's become naturalized because we've all grown up in the context of this you know our parents our grandparents back now for how many generations in the early stages of nation formation I'm sure it wasn't natural at all and you know how, how recently was it when you had to have a passport it was yeah, probably only exactly. about 1900 or something you know before which you could travel relatively freely perhaps with letters of credit or something but not you didn't need an identity document in that sense so i i think i think it's this process of naturalization or kind of normalization which we come to accept but there must have been a time when it was natural to be a tribe and it was natural to be a kingdom but somehow it's uh, so it's this question between evolution and and whatever else right so uh does this do you see this on an arc you see this going towards something you know what i mean well what what i often find interesting is people with hyphenated identity hmm. you know i'm african american or i'm something something you right. know that that 
people are in but that's fact the, that's the ethnic definition yes it is but what i think they're doing is also carving no out african a american space. country yeah but they're carving out a space for themselves i think within the framework of the nation of which which is very hard to escape at the level of identity yes yeah i mean i often think of an englishman i read about somewhere who made himself a passport they said world citizen <laughs> and he got as far as dover where you would take the ferry to france and he didn't i think get on the it boat work. <laughs> right he was turned back at that point immigration people wouldn't accept this of course how do you identify yourself as as an identity well i mean again i i have a passport Is... And unfortunately that passport's going to change at the end of this month at the moment I have a European Union passport but that will no longer be valid after <laughs> the somebody's taking care of that yeah. Yeah. <laughs> which I find very unfortunate because I think it's partly because I grew up in a fairly cosmopolitan you know family environment my my grandparents being from Austria okay having grown up been brought up in England but having lived a lot of my adult life in various places in Asia I don't find a strong rootedness in any particular nation nevertheless you have to identify yourself in that way when it comes to having a passport getting a visa that's for administrative purposes of this kind yeah but those are administrative purposes yes they are but i think they become part of the realities of of our everyday life they provide a frame from which there is very little escape even though we talk about cosmopolitan but does it have any psychological resonance for you well i think part of the question is how people I relate to that how that you know whether whether they are strongly attached to a particular identity which they would call the nation you know that that's a primary thing or whether that is in fact an administrative category which they have to belong to for bureaucratic reasons but are relatively free from it in terms of psychology or indeed in terms of language use you know if, if you grow up in a multilingual family i mean are you know where where, where you know my my gran- great grandparents came from the austro-hungarian empire core were german speaking you know you had hungarians and slovaks and you had poles and you had italians and so on you know what they spoke at home french <laughs> right and this was the language of sort of public discourse and again i don't think in that multinational empire situation language was important but it 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 never got to this point where language itself defined your identity You know, I was in Chennai a couple of weeks ago, and somebody very proudly said to me, "Do you know that Tamil is the oldest language in the world?" Yeah. Which, whether it is or not, I'm not sure, but implying that <laughs> indeed that strong so. linguistic yeah. identity yeah. was pride. a kind of subnational, very strongly rooted subnational yeah. thing yeah. against of, the rest. Yeah. That that sort of raises a question. You know, I do agree with John that nations are not a given. and yet i think they've become naturalized and i don't think we can get away from the impact of bureaucratic protocols so if you are if you have a passport and if you have to apply for visa at the vfs center to go to europe you are reminded again and again and again that you are an indian citizen now you may be irritated at that point of time but then it's a reality that you have organized your life around that's one the other thing i do want to state here is and i think it will also address the issue of language i come from a tamil speaking family that grew up in calcutta so we spoke bangla at home i learned hindi in school i worked in bombay so i knew marathi so in many ways i was a perfect candidate for being an indian you know in many ways i could work in any city with complete ease i didn't you, feel you'd make a good citizen i'd make a good citizen now do i feel anything it that's a difficult question to ask i'm moved by indian languages i'm moved by indian literature 
I'm moved by Indian cinema. I'm moved by Indian music. So does that make me national? I'm, I deeply deplore the excesses of the nation state. Does that make me anti-national? I don't know. I mean, these are, I think, complex questions, but I do think there is really no getting away from the bureaucratic pressure of being within a nation and its boundaries. I don't think you can get away from it. So what happens in the future? What lies ahead? Is this, is this, is this headed somewhere? Oh, the dangers of prediction in yeah. the social sciences, right? I mean, my own answer would be to that, to follow Lakshmi's point, is that politically, I don't really see the nation going away in anything like the foreseeable future. It's too deeply entrenched as that kind of geopolitical reality that we, we have to live with. On the other hand, of course, there, there are other forces. I mean, one is economic globalization, you know, the classical argument that multinationals. Some, well, yes, that some transnational corporations are richer than many states. You know, but, but do you they know. do they necessarily erode the idea of the nation, or it's another no, another it, plane it, altogether? It changes the total. If you were to draw an economic map of the world, it might look rather different from you know the conventional schoolroom map of of the the, politi the political entities. Yeah. I think I think it would. It might be that might be a fun project to try. Actually, I mean, the third level is cultural. You know, even having spent, you were asking about Japan. Now, it's very interesting to see the way in which Japanese popular culture has spread across the rest of East Asia. Yeah. You know, you go to Korea, you go to China, kids are watching Japanese anime. Yeah, manga. Uh, in Taiwan, they're listening to Japanese pop music. In Singapore, they're listening to Taiwanese pop music. I think the question so is, goes. I think the question is, how do these things impact the very idea of the nation? Uh, because eventually, these are causal forces, aren't in, they? Um, it's, it's, in Indian, Indian thing, it seems to be a little different. I think Indians have to take culture with them in the diaspora. I don't find Indian culture being particularly influential outside the Indian diaspora. What about Bollywood in Africa? Bollywood in Africa is actually losing ground, you know. It's not doing so but well. But it did very well for it a while, It won one right? point. It, that was when it had a moral component. But now with the, with the Indians being seen as people <laughs> spending money in Europe, okay, which is the identity of the Indian, I don't think the Africans okay. are doing too well, you know. It's doing much better in the US, in the England and all these countries where there's a huge Indian diaspora, right? They are the ones. So gradually it's moving. Unlike Hong Kong cinema, which is consumed by across the world by all kinds of races, you don't find Indian cinema being consumed. Okay. You don't find that. It's much less consumed. I've been to Morocco where I was invited to a movie house when, I, when the Asher saw me as an Indian and talked about Salman Khan, Shah Rukh Khan. But he was talking about long ago. He was not talking about contemporary movies. He was talking about old movies. Right. So that was the thing, right? So I'm not so sure that Indian Indian uh, films, Indian culture, travels outside the diaspora. Even even Indian music. What what do you say? It, well, I think Indian music is anyway very compartmentalized. I mean, there is a very exclusive, rather elite preoccupation with classical music, which has limited takers, uh, both in terms of the diaspora and in terms of certain institutions in the US and in the UK. However, I do think percussion, there is a whole field of more accessible music, I call it. I, do, I don't like these categories of classical and popular and folk. I find them a little problematic. Um, but I think that there is a, there are interesting experiments that go on, and but they are at more subterranean levels. But I do want to come back uh, to the point, what happens to the nation? And I think 
John was absolutely right. We have to think about the nation in the context of globalization and the transnational turn. But I have a suspicion that globalization itself, the forces of globalization, the ones who are wealthy, who make the money, might either force you to go back to redefining the nation or might undermine it. So in a sense, do nations have the agency to think about whether they are faltering or are they going forward? So I think I wouldn't want to predict. I personally think this particular form, with all its diversity, is here to stay. Uh, that That's the way I can look at it, you know, but I'm not a soothsayer, so I, I really can't uh, but do you make see, that prediction. Uh, but I do see lots of fault lines emerge. Do I see, do see lots of fissures. Do you see one or two factors as being central? Now, obviously, there's language, there's culture, there's ethnicity, and I think this diaspora point is very interesting because in a way, that's a kind of ethnic spread, right? It just goes to people who are from the same bloodlines, directly, indirectly, first order, second order, and so on. How how central is ethnicity to the way the world is organized, to the way the world will be organized? And do you, do you expect that to, um, and again, you could think of it historically and, and what has happened, um, and, and maybe using that as a cue to, oh, I don't know, fast forward how, how many ever generations years well it seems likes. to come back right against the predictions of the some people you know the old melting pot thing we'd all end up with a fairly common identity really really hasn't worked but I think the key question is to ask why yeah and, and to find out why why people would fall back on that kind of identity and of course one argument is indeed that there are lots of people who have not benefited from globalization at, at all. all. In fact, have yeah. suffered from exactly. it. Exactly, casualties. And you know that that promise of the the one world, you know, we'd all be united. This kind of thing has not delivered to them, and so they've embarked so, but then, on. But then that sounds like an economic um, uh, argument. Yes, but what's wrong with that? I mean, I would I would see I would see this the economic factor, in fact, as being a major one in in forming identities. Yeah. It, it's you know. But if then for at, any change to happen, it would have to be an economic success, which is, again, the Well, if you look at it. most politics today, I would say most of it is economics. Right. What sure. do our politicians yeah, talk about? Even the moment when we did have for a while, albeit fleeting, solidarity, was under labor. Yeah. When one could think about a second international, a third international, and with all its problems. Sure. So I think the economic is important, and I absolutely agree. I, I don't see... Well, ethnicity has come back at, at many levels, but I do see in the Indian case, you know, I don't like delinking any of this with class and power and access to resource. I mean, that is at the center of our experience, whether it's national or transnational. I think so, this. You know, uh, where are you on this? The MK? rhetoric. The rhetoric is not economic. By and large, the rhetoric is shifting away from economics to other things, right? The underlying motivation may be economic, but the rhetoric is, I think, moving away. Where are you on this ethnicity question? I think I think uh, are there are there clues in the world of films on on what lies ahead? No, ethnicity is that. I mean, I would say it's a very strong, uh, you know, language ethnicity. And also, not only that, multiculturalism is encouraging that, isn't it? But I, the question is, what this, do you mean? You mean you mean in, in its romanticized avatar? No, it's it sort of it's it's an in the U.S. for instance was once a melting pot. It's become a mosaic, right? 
So you yeah. have you have these cultural things. You look at Jumpa Lahiri, for instance. Uh, Jumpa, she got she gets uh, the Pulitzer Prize. Yeah. Now you look at her writing. She's basically talking herself as a Bengali, right? She's not talking of herself as an American, except that she's living in America, right? So this thing of being a Bengali in America. So that question of you know ethnic thing, roots, all that matters. At the same time, they have to transact with the nation in so some so way. You can't say that Jhumpa Lahiri has not benefited from globalization. Now again, she's benefited. You don't want to pull one instance oh, you're out. Not, okay, no, no. I have your you question. No, no. I, I'm just relating. Okay. I'm just linking things up a little bit. She's benefited, uh, obviously. I think the question, in a way, is there is there something, and I, I know you prefer not to. Uh, make things too naturalized or essential uh, but is there something deep about ethnicity which 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 means that in a way it shall never go away no again i i i i don't have a view on this i'm merely asking you well the anthrop- famous anthropologist clifford gears you may have heard of i mean he argued basically for this idea of a primordial identity or primordialism that somehow we have this kind of deeply rooted thing that i think he did to a great extent identify with ethnicity I, I would broaden it a little bit. I mean, I think it's it's not only ethnicity, it's this whole question of identity politics, mm-hmm. that seeking for voice, and it, it may take the line in some place of ethnicity because that's the vocabulary that's most easily accessible to you. And not only accessible to you, it's not the one that's hard to challenge. I mean, I can, I can criticize your class position or something, but I'd be very careful about criticizing your religion or your ethnicity. You know, this is a bit of a territory I should stay off. It's too sensitive. But it may, it may not be. It may not but be But, you know, that. the moment there are these kinds of definitions, John, it seems like, uh, you know, any kind of life is also political life. What what about private life? What about, you know, a life which is largely private, which doesn't have to be defined along political terms? Is there is there a realm such as that at all? Now, not just in Bergson's films, but uh, in, in reality, uh, no, I know political scientists and theorists and historians would would like to think. Ethnicity of, would uh, uh, only in interactions with people in social life, isn't it? How would that affect your private life? I'm saying ethnicity would uh, would imply social life. It would imply imply transactions with other people, right? Private life. How would ethnicity influence your private life? No, I I think that's not the question. I think the question is what is primordial, and if if maybe there is nothing primordial. I mean, I'm not sure there is anything that's yeah. primordial. <laughs> me too. <laughs> Myself, me too. Right? I don't think you, that, you don't think that is anything primordial. primordial. No, it's it's a flawed notion. I think so. That, yeah, that's I mean, where I, I would be. At. You can adopt the sort of social constructivist position. Yeah. Right. Well, you know, all of these identities are, in fact, things oh, we piece together yeah. out of something. But and whether they're constructivist, they're certainly historical. Yeah, they're certainly historical. But people believe in ethnicities. Yeah. They see kinships, whether it's constructed or not. They see kinships. A lot of our identities are constructed. All of us are constructed in some way, but we still believe in those identities, right? Your no. language identity, it's constructed. No, but I know you prefer not to hazard a guess, but uh, does something lie after nations? Is there an after? Can can these things be thought of in those terms at all? I think in nations are becoming stronger, if anything. I don't see them weakening. They may break up into two, but I don't see the sense of nationhood. Globalization hasn't reduced that, as far as I can make out. They seem they seem to be stronger. If anything, the, the divisions between nations have become stronger. For last, I think the last twenty years they've become stronger. It seems to be made stronger. They, they look at the kind of divisions in the world today. The far more strength. They're going to war. I mean, twenty years ago we would have said there was no war was not possible anymore. 
it was only economic but now we're going to war they're threatening each other yes i can't really venture a guess i i can see the retreat to the rhetoric of nationalism becoming very sharp very strong as he says in recent years but i'm thinking more but as rhetoric more, you think it's deployed I'm, as I'm, a tool I'm as a rhetoric yes but in in terms of the form that we all yeah. have subscribed under i don't see it going away but i do see pressures within it building up and maybe provide an opportunity to rethink it to recalibrate its uh, forms and features that's the way i look at it i don't see it going away yeah i i i i'd largely agree and i think there may also be a generational issue <laughs> that's here. absolutely you know, right that younger yeah. people i mean i was reading the 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 paper on the plane coming here and there was an article about this young swedish lady greta right yeah who is change. in fact uh, arguing that, you know that that the existing political apparatus has failed around one of the greatest current pressing issues because somehow nations are not able to cooperate with each other yeah but there. also suggesting something like you know ecological crisis might in fact be a, a form of unity which might bring people together across exactly. national boundaries you know religion tends to divide other things tend to divide but you know the environment something that affects us all it could it could become a kind of common discourse that might be transnational in a in a new sense interesting interesting that's a good note to end this on thanks to all of you for making it and we'll look forward to having you soon again thanks for coming thank you thank you thank you so much